Thank you. Okay, this morning we are in back in, I should say, the book of Isaiah. It's been a little while. Uh, I'm excited to get back in the book of Isaiah. So if you wouldn't mind to turn there with me this morning, we're in chapter 26. And yes, that's where we left off. The last, we were in uh, chapter 25, we went through verse 12. And so this morning we are in chapter 26, beginning with verse 1. We won't cover the whole chapter today, but we'll at least cover 11 verses. All right? And so it says, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And I just want to stop right there because that sets us up for what we're about to embark on together. In that day, this song will be sung. And of course, we need to ask, in what day? Well, in that day. What day is that? Given the context of what we're about to read, we can be sure that the day is the day that salvation is realized in a person's heart. The day that salvation is realized is the day that a song will be sung. There is a contrast that we're going to see between people who have no idea about who God is and his salvation, and there's going to be those who understand it. But we also know that it's during this lifetime because there are struggles that only, we only face during this life and not the next. So it has to be during this life, and it has to be when there are people who understand it and people who don't. And so when we come to understand salvation, this is the day that song will be sung, and, and the question has to be, is this the song of my heart? That's the question today. Is this the song of my heart, or do I skip that verse and I sing, a, <laughs> I sing a different part? This should be the song of our heart today. And so let's see what the song entails. Let's look at the second half of verse 1. It says, We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Okay, and so let's talk a little bit about that. We have those who have understood salvation in their heart. We. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Now, I have a picture here that I want to show you. This is not the city in question, but this is a rendering of Jericho. We're familiar with the city of Jericho, right? They marched around, the walls fell down. Um, okay, so this is an example of a double-walled city. Okay, this was a common, common, common way to defend your city. There's an inner wall, there's an outer wall. And you can notice on the side that both of the walls have a gate. You have to go through a gate to get inside the inner wall, and you have to go through another gate to actually get in the city. Okay, so what it says here is that salvation is set up as walls and bulwarks, that is, walls and defensive walls. That is, a wall around the city and then a defensive wall around that city, or around that wall. Okay, so it's a, a structure of two walls. And then you notice it also says open the gates, plural, not gate, because there are two. There are two walls, there are two gates, and what is it that can open the gates? Well, it says salvation and, or excuse me, it says faith and righteousness, but we'll get to that in a moment. So the walls around this city are salvation. The first wall is salvation. The second wall is salvation. Both of the walls are made up of salvation. And it says, open the gates that we might enter in. Of course, this is a, this is a city that we want to be in, right? No, we want to be in the city that is perfectly protected forever. Isn't that the city you want to live in? 
that there is no harm that can happen to those inside the city. I want to live in that city where it is only perfection all the time. I want to live in that city. I'm safe from everything else because the walls that have been set up, no one can penetrate. The enemy cannot get in to the city. But first, the gate must be open that we can walk in, right? The picture we have to understand is that there are a bunch of dead bodies laying outside of this city wall. Bunch of dead bodies and active evil spirits. Only those who enter the city can get in through the gate that have faith and righteousness. All the dead bodies laying around are dead because they don't have faith and they don't have righteousness, but they are dead in their sins. So what needs to happen is that life needs to be breathed into them. They need to have faith and righteousness in order that they can walk through the gate and be inside the city. Now, that seems like that can't happen because everybody's dead. Right? Exactly. That is the miracle of the gospel, is that new life by the Spirit of God is breathed into a person and they are reborn of the Spirit. Life is given to them. And it is not just life, but it is a life of righteousness and a life of faith. Now we have everything we need to walk through the gates because life has been breathed into us and we have righteousness and faith. What is the righteousness? Some believe that they open the gates based on their own righteousness. Of course, what is righteousness? It's goodness, we could say. Those things you do that you consider to be good. But of course, the things you consider to be good are not always the things that God considers to be good. And so what is righteousness and what is faith? Now, you can be faithful in a lot of things, but still not get inside the city. You can be a faithful husband. You can't get in the city. You can be a faithful worker or employee. You can't get in the city. That's not what it's about. You can be a faithful child, right? You can be faithful. You can be a faithful sinner, right? You can be a faithful drunk. You can be a faithful lot of things, but it's not going to get you in the city. So what kind of faith do we need? And what kind of righteousness do we need? Well, both of the things need to be perfect. We need to have perfect faith and perfect righteousness in order to get in the city. How do we know that? I want to read Philippians 3, 8, and 9 for you. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Savior. Okay, so pause right there. I consider everything else as loss. Why? Because only Jesus Christ matters to get in the city. Isn't that the goal, by the way, to get, it, to get in the city? So nothing else matters. Nothing else matters but Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that's the key to the city, is Jesus. So it says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, because he's all that matters. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Okay, so by faith in Christ, we all of a sudden have the righteousness necessary to enter into the city. Is it a righteousness of our own? Is it because we did good things? No. It is not because we did good things. It's not because we thought good thoughts. The righteousness that we have is not a righteousness of our own. It is the righteousness of Christ that is the big word here is imputed to us. 
has been put into us. It is not our righteousness. It is not our goodness. It is the righteousness of Christ that has been put into us at the moment of faith. And once we get that righteousness, we see the doors of the gates open. If it were dependent on our righteousness, our goodness, well, it wouldn't work because we're dead. We can't do anything good in our flesh because we're dead in our sins. So we need the Spirit of God to enable us, to breathe life into us, to impute us with the righteousness of Christ. We need that. And so we say, and this is in your notes, in summary, only faith in Christ provides the righteousness that is required to open the gates of salvation. Only faith in Christ provides that righteousness. Everyone else remains outside the city. They can never get in. Of course, we have to ask, have we already entered the strong city? I've kind of alluded to that already. Have we already entered this city? Or is it something yet to come? Is the city heaven? You could think of it that way, right? The city is heaven. It's talking about eternal things. Well, in, in this particular context, it's, it's, it is, yes, fully realized in heaven, fully realized in heaven, but yet this city here is partially realized now at the moment of salvation. Why? Because the people inside the city have struggles and sins. Do people in heaven have struggles and sins? No. So it can't be heaven, right? The full picture, yes, obviously, is a heavenly reality. But what we're talking about here is a people who are inside a strong city by faith in Christ. They've opened the doors through faith by righteousness that is not their own, the perfect righteousness that opens the doors. And now we are in the city, okay, by faith in Christ. That is a moment of salvation. We come into the city. And about those people in the city, look at verses 3 and 4. Here's what it says about those people. Again, remember the whole point, listen for it, is this the song of my heart? Is this the song that I sing? Bad news, everybody. I didn't start my timer, so I'm starting it right now. Okay? <clears throat> so we just started. All that was free. Okay? This is when the sermon starts. So uh, let's look at verses 3 and 4. Therefore, strong, uh, uh, excuse me. It says, therefore, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Now, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you, so trust in the Lord forever. This is not something that you need to try to convince the people in heaven about. Their mind is in perfect peace forever. They are in a glorified state. There is no sin. How about achieving inner peace? The common antidote for achieving inner peace, because we all know that we're at unrest in our soul, right? There's something wrong with us, and I, I can't get it figured out pretty much every day. I, I feel uneasy about something. Something is not right. The common antidote for inner peace is found within yourself. Inner peace. I don't know why this means that, but it does. It's, this is inner peace, all right? Let me give you some uh, very famous, as I found in some research, famous quotes about finding inner peace. Are you ready? 
Nobody can bring you peace but yourself. Here's another one. If you cannot find peace within yourself, you will never find it anywhere else. You know who said that one? Marvin Gaye. Remember him? You will never find peace of mind until you listen to your heart. Or throw God into the mix. It's vital that you accept yourself and learn to be happy with who God made you to be. If you want to truly enjoy yourself, you must be at peace within yourself. Now, all of those statements I would disagree with completely. I hope you do too. The problem is that this is what the world tells us. How do I find peace? Google search that. It will come up with these statements, these thoughts. How do you find it? Just be at peace within yourself. Push out the bad. Get rid of distractions. Certain religions use meditations and mantras, right? Meditations and mantras. These are religions like, you'll, you'll recognize these, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, that's an old one. Sure. Repeated words and phrases that invoke spiritual and psychological healing as they understand it. However, we know that true peace cannot be achieved. True peace cannot be achieved by emptying your mind or manipulating your thoughts to be positive. I hope you know that's true, even though sometimes you try to do it because that's what the world says is the best practice. How can this be true Because sin is the issue that needs to be dealt with to give peace. All right, I want you to write something down and then we're going to talk about it. The reality is that peace is produced by an active mind that focuses on God and faith. That's, that's the reality. That's the quote that needs to be there. The peace is produced by an active mind that focuses on God and faith, not a detached mind that thinks about nothing and strives to get rid of all thoughts. Okay? You're seeking for some kind of zen. Right? A state of nothingness. That's not what we do. That's not how you find peace. And if you do find momentary peace, all it is is like a spiritual painkiller that's not actually producing any true benefit to you. It's just dulling the pain, right? It's just, it's just making it to where the true problem doesn't really affect you as much anymore. But it's not actually bringing about any healing. It's not producing true peace. Okay, so it says, back in our text, it says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So we have to say, these are the, there's, there are people inside this strong city They've got there by the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to them, by faith in the one who is truly righteous. We are inside that city. The walls and the gates are shut. The walls are high. The walls are strong. No enemy can get to us inside the walls. Problem is, the people in the city still are not at peace a lot of times. 
the people don't feel safe. They don't feel protected. But we're afraid that the enemy might get in, that we're in danger. We ask, what's going to happen to me? Because we don't believe or trust the reality of us being safe. But when our trust is in God, our trust is in something that cannot and will not fail. We need to know that. We need to know that God is perfectly good and sovereign. All he has said is true and will come to pass. If he says you are safe and protected, you are safe and protected. But why is our mind sometimes not focused or stayed on God? If our mind were always continually focused and stayed on God, you know what you would always have? You would always have peace. Do you always have peace? You don't always have peace. I don't know each of you intimately, but what I do know is that you don't always have peace. I know that's true. Because you're not in heaven yet. That's why I know it's not true. So then we have to say why. The mind that is focused on God, stayed on God, is in a state of peace. But we are not at peace, so what does that mean? Our mind is not stayed on God. It's pretty simple. We used to have, in my elementary school, uh, haunted, haunted houses. Um, now, the one I'm reflecting back on was, this was about 25 years ago. And uh, I remember being there. I, we only went one time. And so that's why it was memorable to me. We went one time to this haunted house. And, you know, to me, it was very, very scary. Very, very scary. And the people there, reflecting on it, the people there were uh, um, parents, volunteers, who dressed up in really non-scary things. It's just that the room, I remember they got these big rolls of the, uh, like, trash bag, material, you know, and they, were, they would cover it, and everything was black, and you kind of walk through a maze, and they'd shine a light on you, and they'd make you jump, or, you know, whatever it was. I was terrified. I remember they'd take you through in little groups, and I, and I remember vividly. I don't have a lot of memories from my childhood, but I have this one. I, I, I remember vividly in a group of about three or four people, and I was walking, holding onto the person's shirt in front of me, behind them like this. I remember ducking down and walking. And I remember having my eyes closed. And I just, and I remember I opened my eyes and I can see it still. And I looked out the corner of my eye and I saw someone just waiting like this around a corner in the dark. And I was, I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know what this is. I was terrified. Um, but I reflect back on that. And I remember there was always an adult that led each group through. The adults weren't scared. Why were the adults not scared? Because they saw it for what it really was. This is an elementary school haunted house. This is not scary stuff. Right? They saw it for what it was. So here's, here's who we are. We are scared little children seeing stuff, and we don't realize what it is we're seeing. If we were to see it for what it really is, we wouldn't be scared at all. The problem is that we see it in an earthly way. We don't see it in a heavenly way. That is, we see it through our mind. We don't see it through the mind of God. So our mind is not stayed on him. Our mind is stayed on us and on the earth. And when we see things falling apart, we don't see it as God sees it. We see it as we see it, and we're terrified. For the mature, they have their minds stayed on God, and they have more peace throughout circumstances of life. For the immature, they have their mind more focused on things of earth, and therefore they don't have as much peace as the mature. 
Now, what does Scripture tell us about the mature? That the mature have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Do you remember that? Is it true that the Bible would say that there's an obligation on you? Well, yeah. Because that's what you should do. Those who are mature have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, like the adult walking the children and saying, it's okay, really. I can see it for what it is. You're going to be okay. I promise. You're going to be fine. We'll make it to the end. This is, should be the mature acting with the immature in the church. So when there's someone who's going through a circumstance that you've been through, that God pulled you through, that matured your faith through that, and someone else is going through that, you can walk up beside them and comfort them and bear their burdens and bear with their failings and help them to trust, to have peace in the one who is trustworthy. Remind them, remind yourself, hey, we're in, we're in a strong city here. Keep your mind on the things that really are and not what they seem to be. Another way of saying this, another direction you could go, is by saying having, you could have a biblical worldview. To have a biblical worldview means to see things through the lens of Scripture, not through the lens of whatever else that you've created. Okay? So when things happen in life, we evaluate them based on what Scripture says, not based on how you think or feel. Because your thoughts and your feelings lie to you every day. The one thing that doesn't lie to us is the scriptures, the word of God. It doesn't lie. Your feelings, lie. Your thoughts, your inclinations, lie. Because they're bent towards sin. Okay? You're not perfect. The word of God is. We trust in it. And so we view our circumstances in our life through the lens of the scriptures. And it gives us peace. Now I want to read a passage here. This is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ... If you have gone through the gates of salvation and now live in the city, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above and not the things that are on earth. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't every day be better if you were considered or you concerned more about the things of God than you were about the things of man? Wouldn't every day be peaceful? I'd have peace in my heart every because I'm not concerned about that. Car broke down, that stinks. But listen, it's not. That's not a knife to my soul. Okay, I'm okay about that. Really, it'll be fine. Lost your job. It gets worse. Someone dies. Go through terrible heartache. Now the surfacey stuff, it's okay. We can laugh about that. But what about when the really hard stuff happens? I'm going to be okay. My soul has been scraped here. It, 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 it hurts. But I'm going to make it. Because I'm not in something that can be shaken and then I can fall out of or that anybody can grab me from. I, I, I'm in this city and I'm safe. But I have to recognize too that this is not all there is. The things I experience here are just a taste of the heavenly city. One day I will be there in full. One more here. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. 
Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and what you have received, what you have seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. To have peace in this life, consider the things that are in heaven where Christ is. To have peace, think about the things that God has called good. And then even when a situation doesn't make sense, you will have peace that surpasses understanding. I don't know why I'm okay with that. All I'm thinking about here is the greatness of God and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That just happened. I should be really torn up about that. But for some reason, I just, I know things will be okay. You ever experienced that? I just know things will be okay. Even Things will be okay? Sometimes the, the world doesn't understand what we mean by that. It'll be okay. Someone stole my car. It'll be okay. What I mean by it'll be okay is that they're going to deliver, they're going to bring it back to me. They were just, they just wanted to wash it. That's not what we mean, right? What I mean by it's okay is, listen, how important was that car really in the grand scheme of things? You think that happened by accident? You think that God is not in control? Well, okay, I, I guess if God is in control, then that gives me some kind of peace of mind because I remember then that I'm in a city that can't be moved. And I've been brought in this city. The gates are closed now. I, you can't go back the other way. I'm, I'm here. So if Jesus is all that matters and I already have him, then what is a car? What is a job? What is my physical health? We can trust him forever because why? He is an everlasting rock. He's everlasting, and he is strong. What this really means is that he is the great and eternal God. If he is great, Greek word is megas. We know what that means, right? Mega is big. He's huge. He is the great eternal God. He is unmoving. You can trust in him. There is nothing that can move him, nothing that can destroy him, nothing that can manipulate him, nothing that can hurt him. And he is the one who has set up the walls around the city. You're going to be okay. Remember with me Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life Angels or rulers, things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because we have a strong city that has been protected by the everlasting eternal God. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. It says, For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city, he lays it low, he lays it to the ground, he casts it to the dust, the foot tramples at the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. Okay? Contrast our great fortified city with a lofty city. What is this city? This is the city that thinks 
they're a big deal. This is the city that thinks they can build their city to the heavens. These are the people that think that they have everything when in fact they have nothing. He lays it low. By the re- our, our reason for rejoicing, our reason for trusting in him, our reason for having hope and peace, for, as verse 5 starts, for, this is the reason why, for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it to the ground. He casts it to the dust. And the foot, the feet of the poor and the needy are the ones that trample on this city. The lofty city is the one that appears to be strong. He takes what is lifted up and he brings it low. Do you remember that Jesus promised that it is the meek of the earth who shall inherit the land and they shall be the ones in abundant peace? That's Psalm or Matthew 5, 5, Jesus quoting from Psalm 37, verses 8 through 11. The meek shall inherit the earth. The poor, the needy, they are the ones that will be in abundant peace. The wicked will be no more. Their feet will trample on all that the lofty city has done. We need to remember here, we're talking about this Gospel of John the last two weeks. Um, here we have contrasted the city of darkness and the city of light, right? Um, the city of darkness is that outside the city. They think they have everything that is good and right, but in reality, they're walking in darkness, they're walking in death, unrighteousness. They have nothing. But in the city of light, we come to see all that is in the city of light. And here's really the point. I want you to write this in your notes. The point is that we need to keep our mind on the sovereign purposes of the Lord. And this will give you peace until that time is fulfilled. What time? That time. Whatever time we're talking about. The grand reality of things. Until that time is fulfilled. Okay? That time. Keep your mind on the sovereign purposes of the Lord. Remember, all that God has promised, He will fulfill. If He has said you are safe in the city, you are safe in the city. If He said one day He will come back for you, He will come back for you. If he said, all that the Father has given me are mine and I will not lose a single one out of my hand, it is true. If there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ, it is true. The worst thing you can ever imagine facing in this life cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ. It is true. Keep your mind focused on the sovereign purposes of God. Let's look at verse 7 because the last several verses here really help us to bring about some good application. Because again, we have a concept that is really easy to mentally grasp. This is, this is really easy, isn't it? Oh, just think about God and everything else just kind of fades into the... I, I could have just said that, right? Just think about God all the time. Don't think about yourself or this earth and everything will be okay, right? The problem is that that is really difficult to do on a daily basis. So the last several verses help us with that. Let's look, verses 7 through 11. It says, The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous and the path of, the, or the path of your judgments. O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and your remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of the upright, he deals corruptly. He does not see the majesty of the Lord. 
O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see the zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Okay. Here's what we need to see. The judgments of God. The judgments of God are the thing, is, is what really creates peace in this world. But I, I just want you to hear me for a second. We normally think the opposite. If God has judgment on something, what do we imagine? Chaos, right? Destruction, harm. But the reality is, is that the judgments of God is what brings about peace in this world. How can that happen? Now, we have to talk about that because we face the judgment of God in the world we live in, right? We face the judgment of God on ourselves, right? By the discipline of the Lord, we face that in our lives, which makes life hard, which stops me from having peace, right? Okay, so... How is it that, that the judgments of God are actually the thing that creates peace? Without the judgment of God, what I'm arguing, arguing to you is that there would be no peace. Without the judgment of God, there would be no peace. But because we have the judgment of God and we, and we see it, this is what brings about peace. So look at this with me. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, the, the, the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and your remembrance are the desire of our soul. I want you to see that it says, in the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. You see there's a corporate element to it here. He's talking about a, a collective group of people, a collective group of people that are inside the city. What do we know this as? Well, this is the church. Okay, so the judgments of God create peace in the church. How does he do that exactly? It says, you make level the way of the righteous. How? In the path of your judgments. If God did not bring about judgment in the church, it would be impossible for them to walk on a level path. Now, the level path is the path of peace, the path of righteousness. We understand that. A jagged path is one that is crazy. A smooth path is one that is easy. The smooth path, the level path, is good and righteous. How do we walk on that path? We can't walk on that path unless God corrects our errors. You see, we're like a, like a bent stick, something that, or maybe think of it as metal because it's malleable, right? It, metal is bent like this, all crazy, and he bends it back straight. Now, that hurts, but now I'm level. And then you go another day or an hour or a minute, and he bends you again, and he bends you back straight, and that hurts but now my path is more level, and the more level I get, what do I have more of? Peace. You see, without the judgment of God, we would continually have an upset in our soul about the sin that is going uncorrected. So it is the discipline of God in the midst of the church. And how does he do it in the, in the context of the church? He does it by corporate teaching. He does it by corporate discipline. He does it by corporate confession of sin. He does it by corporate celebration, fellowship. I hope that when we have our times together, that, that more often than not, when we have our teaching time, it is a time of conviction of the soul. The point of a sermon, no matter what anybody tells you, I'm going to tell you what's right. You can read the scriptures and see if I am right. The point of a sermon, the point of teaching, is that the word of God might be rightly communicated, 
or as the scripture itself says, rightly divided in the word of truth, that the spirit of God would use God's word to convict your heart to change, to holiness. The point of a sermon is not to make you feel better about who you are because you know what that is? That's finding inner peace. I want to make you feel better today because you've had a rough week, so I'm going to tell you how great you are today so that you leave feeling better. Wrong. That, that is the spiritual Tylenol I was talking about. Okay? That's what churches, a lot of churches operate on today. Making you feel better for the moment, but I need to come back and be recharged so I can go back out into the world. I'm going to come back feel better, and I'll go back. And come back and feel better, and I'll go back. No, what, what the church is here to produce is right teaching that the Lord uses to convict your heart of sin that your path may be made level or straight, that you might have peace, a peace that is real. This naturally moves on to the next, which is not only peace, judgment of God in, in its church, but also in my, in my soul, right? It's interesting if you look at verse 9, he changes. He says, he was saying, we wait for you, the desire of our soul, and look at how verse 9 starts. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. How is it that we learn righteousness? Through the judgment of God. That's how we learn righteousness. It's through the judgment of God. Now he says, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. Here's what's crazy about this passage right here. Again, I'm asking, is this the song of your heart? This is maybe the point that might challenge you. The night is when you can't see. The night is when you are in sin. So what he's saying is, when I am in sin and in darkness, and I don't have peace in myself, and I'm going crazy, that is when my soul longs for the judgment of God to shine on my heart. I want him to bend me back straight. I know it's going to hurt. But there's nothing more I desire than that right now. Because that is the only way, only way to living in, in peace in this world. We live in this world. This world's a hard world to live in because it's been so corrupted by sin. What I want to ask you this morning is when you are going through tough times, times of sin, times of temptation to sin, time of disruption in your mind, times of anxiety, depression. How are you dealing with it? Now, I'm not making a blanket statement because I will tell you that I'm a proponent that says, or a proponent of, uh, mental health. Okay? I believe there are circumstances and conditions that need to be dealt with by medical professionals. That is true. Okay? So don't hear me wrong, but what I am saying that for most of us, common anxieties and depressions is because you're not dealing with the sin that's in your life. You're not coming to terms with the sin in your life. Now, have you already been made righteous by Christ? Yeah, because I live in the city. I, I have the righteousness of Christ. I, I, I live in the eternal city, but... I don't have peace right now. Okay, well, stay your mind on God. But when I think about God, it makes me feel bad. 
because he is perfectly good. I just, the more I look at him, the more bad I am. And I don't like that. It makes me feel bad. Right, that is the process of bending you back straight. That's what you need. That's what you need. If your mind has stayed on him, he will make your path straight, your path level. It hurts, but that's the way to deal with it. The judgment of sin brings conviction. Conviction brings confession of that sin. Confession brings mercy from God. Mercy brings peace and joy. You see how it works? Without the judgment of God, would you have peace? Because you could depend wholly on the mercy and the graces of God. That's what gives me peace. I messed up. What is God going to do to me? Well, he might discipline you, but the wrath he took out on Christ. What do you have to be afraid of? God is disciplining you of a son because he loves you. He wants your path to be straight. Finally, verses 10 and 11. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly. He does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see the zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. So we, here we have those who are not in the city, those who are wicked, those who are walking in darkness. And it says when the Lord acts in this world with his judgments, the world is oblivious to him. They can't see that that's the hand of God at work. If your hand is oblivious to the workings of God, you too will be at an unrest in your soul. But here's what he's pointing out, is that the judgment of God also brings peace in the world, or to this world. Okay? The hand of God is lifted up in judgment, but the people don't see it. Again, remember what we talked about in John, is that the light of the world came to the earth, but... But they love the light, right? Went, oh, we were waiting for light to come and we love it. No, they said, I hate the light. Let's kill it so we're in darkness again. I don't want to see how bad I am. Remember, they, they hated the light. They loved the darkness more than the light. And they killed him. They didn't know that what they were doing was actually the sovereign intentions of God. They killed him. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak about you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's what I'm saying is that the people outside will look at your life and the judgment of God on your life and you being bent straight from God's judgment and they're going to look and see, well, maybe that is God. Maybe uh, maybe God is real. Now, I'll, I'll tell you this, this works, not only because the scripture says it, obviously, but I will tell you that this is what brought about my salvation. I saw this happen in my mom's life. She was not perfect. 
but what I saw is a struggle to get rid of sin. And her conquering sin, big sin. I thought, whoa. Can that be real? Can that really happen? And in that I saw the power of God. My mind started turning and turning. And it wasn't long before I professed faith in Christ. Do you know there might be someone looking at you today? Really. There might be someone looking at you, seeing how you're handling life. Is that the power? Oh, I see the power of God at work in your life. Man, yeah, I know that it's been a struggle for you. I can see the power of God working in your life. But there are going to be some who look at it and they say, you serve God? Look at what he's doing to your life. That's not a God to serve. No, their eyes are blinded, right? Their hearts are darkened. The visible judgment of God against sin shows the world that God has zeal for his people. You see that in our text? Let them see the zeal for your people. God has zeal for you. He's jealous over you. Right? We are betrothed to God in Christ. And when we stray off into sin, that's like us being unfaithful to our betrothed. And so he's jealous over us. And so he disciplines us. He says, walk on a level path. I'm have mercy on you, okay? I'm going to have mercy on you for that. Confess your sins to me. I am faithful and I am just. You confess your sins, I will forgive them. I will be a merciful God. You are betrothed to me in love. And I'm not going to get rid of that. I'm not going to undo that, okay? Now, I need you to remember that our betrothal time, our engagement, only lasts as long as there's life in your body. Okay, now as soon as you die, the realities will become known. But it's going to be a hard road, and there's going to be a lot of bending until that time. And so I asked you at the beginning, is this the song that you sing? Is this the song that you sing? Is this the song of your heart, oh God, bring judgment on me? that my soul might have peace and that others might see and know you. Is that the song of your heart? Does your soul yearn for him in the night? We're going to take some time here and uh, we're going to sing two songs as we finish this morning. And uh, I want you to consider the longings of your soul. Is the longing of your soul, God, leave me alone? Just stop messing with me? Is your, is your inclination to say, well, I just won't think about God because the more I think about I mean, it's just hard work to think about God, what he wants me to do, and I'll read my Bible to understand what he said to me. I just, that's a really difficult thing to do. I don't really want to do that. Um, what is the longing of your soul? Where are you trying to find peace in your life? You're trying to find it somewhere. Let's just be honest. You're trying to find peace somewhere. Sometimes you just distract yourself. Sometimes you eat. Right? Sometimes you uh, watch movies. Sometimes you just get on Facebook. 
Now, is it the passive, distracted mind who has peace? Or is it the active mind that has stayed on God that has peace? It is the active mind that has stayed on God that has peace. Now, I'll say to you that I, as I was preparing for this sermon, I had a pretty deep conviction that my mind has been very distracted by something in particular for a while that was not keeping my mind stayed on God, but was keeping my mind stayed on other stuff that was causing me anxiety. And it was Facebook. And so I've left the Facebook world uh, forever. So if you used to talk to me on Facebook, you'll notice I'm not there anymore. All right? It doesn't exist to me anymore. That world is gone. For those of you who are older and say, okay, I don't even know what you're talking about anyway, that's okay. You don't have to care. If you're younger and you say Facebook is for older people, that's okay. Just know this is where I was at, all right? I'm saying this to you because you're somewhere with this. There are distractions in your life that make you think about the stuff. You see, the only thing that matters is Christ. Stop distracting yourself with all this stuff and stay your mind on Him. That is what matters. That's what's going to get you through this engagement time, okay? You're going to lose your mind. You're going to go crazy. But you know what? Even if you lose your mind and you go crazy, you still can't run yourself out of the city. Don't you know that? You still can't lose what you have in Christ. Does it mean, okay, do whatever you want? No, as Paul says, may it never be. What are the longings of your soul? Where is your mind? Those are the questions to ask today. What song is my soul singing? What do I long for?